0: Good evening. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 7. In our study in the book of Revelation, we have moved into the bulk of the book, the judgments that are recorded in chapters 6 through 19, also known as the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. Uh, Last week, we finished looking at the sixth seal judgment, which unleashed some rather terrifying cosmic disturbances in the heavens, prompting many of the unbelievers on earth who will be alive at that time to pray to the creation, to kill them, rather than having to face the wrath of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. The narrative then flows into chapter 7, which begins with the words, after these things, It's uh, the same phrase that was used by John to begin chapter 4. It's the Greek phrase, metatauta. Um, This is an important phrase in the book of Revelation. Uh, It connects what comes before it with what comes after it, and yet it forms a clear line of demarcation, uh, separating what comes before from what comes after. So it's connected, but it's like a, a pause Something is coming. Uh, It's connected to what was just said, but, you know, we have to take a pause for a second and take it in. And that's important because the uh, sixth seal is finished at the end of chapter 6. And now between the sixth seal and the opening of the seventh seal, chapter 8, verse 1, there is a pause. And uh, I don't know, I think we need a pause at this point. Uh, you know, to kind of catch our breath, so to speak, as we pause to take in and think upon what we have seen so far up to this point, seen through the eyes of John, of course. He's watching it all unfold and writing it down for us. But to also to allow some of the things to take place before the opening of the seventh seal, which will begin the seven trumpet judgments, which is no doubt why John puts metatauta to begin chapter 7. What is coming? is connected to what has already taken place, yet separate in scope. So, verse 1, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. The four corners of the earth, and of course skeptics at this point shout, Aha! I knew it! You can't trust the Bible! What a bunch of ridiculous nonsense! Everyone knows the earth is round, the four corners of the earth. Come on. Look, God knows the earth is round. Isaiah 40, verse 22, I sit above the circle of the earth. Okay? Uh, It's figurative. Okay? Uh, Years ago, the uh, U.S. Marines ran an ad campaign where they said, Our Marines are stationed on the four corners of the earth. I think the Marines know the earth is round. It's just figurative language. We talk about the four points of the compass. We know there's not four, you know, north, south, east, or west. It's not, you know, we, we understand that sometimes these, these these things are figurative, right? And that's what's going on here in verse 1 of chapter 7. Not literal, but uh, simply a figure of speech, much like, uh, you know, when, when people poetically talk about, you know, the, the, the four corners of the earth, or you see that in, in sometimes in, like I said, uh, our military jargon and so on, but um, this stopping the wind, okay? Stopping the wind, I, I think, in some ways um, implies the calm before the storm. See, we're pausing as we finish the sixth seal before we open or John uh, Jesus opens the, uh, the the seventh seal. There's a pause. We have to take it in. We have to stop and think about what we have just seen. And uh, something big is coming now. There's a, there's a a change taking place. Remember when John uh, opened Revelation chapter 4 with the same phrase, tauta, right? Well, chapters 2 and 3 dealt with the church age, all right? Uh, chapter 4 began a whole different uh, uh, thing, okay? The church was now raptured up into heaven, and we were now moving into the uh, the last major section of the book. Jesus divided the book into three main sections in chapter 1 verse 19 by saying to John, write the things which you have seen. That would have been the vision of chapter 1 of Jesus Christ. Write the things which are. Well, John lived in the church age. And so chapters 2 and 3, Jesus dictates seven letters to seven churches that encompass all of the church age, all of church history. And then chapter 4, metatauta, after these things, what? After what things? After the church age is done, uh, something new is going to begin. So the metatauta marks the end of something, the beginning of something else. In this context, the end of the sixth seal in preparation for the for the opening of the seventh seal, which unleashes the seven uh, trumpet judgments all right so um, but but the calm before the storm I don't know I've never actually been uh, in a tornado or had a tornado come through our neighborhood uh, and it, maybe I got some wrong information but I, I hear from people who have uh, seen tornadoes and things come through their neighborhoods that right before the thing hits it's kind of an eerie calmness and then then it comes on the scene you know And uh, I kind of think that uh, this is kind of the idea here. There's just a kind of a calm before the storm kind of an attitude going on here. You see, God controls all of nature. And God can use what is natural in supernatural ways. I mean, he created, he's the God of nature, and he can use nature any way he chooses. And sometimes he will use it to bring judgment. And so that's what we're seeing here Uh, The day of wrath has come, great wrath, and he uses the forces of nature to judge mankind. Verse 2, John said, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Things were sealed back then for a couple of main reasons. To show ownership, first of all, and then to secure or to protect. Paul the Apostle uses this idea to teach on the security of the believer in Christ. Turn to Ephesians 1 real quick. This idea of sealing something is an important concept, not just in Revelation here, but even when it comes to our uh, salvation being sealed in Christ, and so on, Ephesians chapter one, starting with verse 13. and Paul said, in him in Jesus you were all you, you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, Until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Paul is telling us that as soon as a person believes in the gospel and receives Jesus as their Savior, at that very instant, guys, they are saved and they are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, by saying this, Paul is drawing from a practice that was very common in his day. Uh, In those days, many people could not read or write, so often a man would have a signet ring made that could be used to represent his signature. And the ring would then be pressed into wax or some other soft substance that would eventually harden and uh, would, uh, would, be, would act as his seal. Uh, these seals would be used for a number of purposes. I'll mention uh, two of the more common purposes. First of all, as I just mentioned, ownership, ownership. A seal spoke of ownership and again would have been very familiar to Paul's audience that he was writing to there in Ephesus. You see often uh, a merchant from Ephesus would uh, would sail across the Aegean to Europe to Greece or some other place where they would buy merchandise and they would pay for it and then the uh, the seller would take whatever the substance was and and he, he or she would would drip it onto some kind of a document or onto the actual uh, purchased item, and then he would the buyer would stick his signet ring into this substance, which would then harden. He would go back home, and this, this merchandise would eventually be loaded on a ship, sailed across the Aegean Sea to the port of Ephesus, where he would go down, and locate the uh, the shipper the, the 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 cargo company that was used and he would show the the shipper his ring it would be matched to the signet seal on the merchandise and that would prove that it was his it was the proof of ownership right he had bought and paid for it that was the idea and a uh, very important concept back then and uh, but it did speak of ownership now Paul is using this in a spiritual sense about our salvation. And he's basically saying, look, when you received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. In other words, God bought and paid for you with the blood of his Son. He sealed you with the Holy Spirit, then declaring his ownership of you, that it was a, a finished transaction, a done deal, right? Uh, in 1 Corinthians 16, if to turn there, verses 19 and 20, Paul said, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You don't belong to yourself anymore, all right? You, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which now belong to him. And that's the idea, that we were bought, we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, but when we were redeemed, we became the property of the living God, his servants. And and, and like uh, a, a person back then will go down to the Agora uh, to buy a slave to do work in his farm or whatever. Uh, he would pay the price of redemption, and that slave would become his property. And he would use the slave sometimes just for the harvest, and then take the slave back down to the Agora, the marketplace, where the slave was resold. Sometimes uh, a wealthy uh, a person would buy a slave and at the end of the whatever period of time he needed uh, to use the slave for he was a magnanimous person and he would uh, let the slave go free. Okay, so the purchase he would pay for the redemption of this slave and then set the slave free. That's essentially what Jesus Christ did. He He purchased us with his own blood and set us free. We're no longer the slaves of sin, Satan, and so on, right? So what do we do? We turn right around and say, but we want to voluntarily become your slave. He set us free. That was called being a bond slave. Whenever a man had to sell himself into slavery to work off a debt, and they would often do this, couldn't pay the money, but he would then put himself under the, uh, uh, under the uh, uh, authority of, of another human being who would be his master. After the terms of the agreement was done, where he had worked off his debt, the master would let him go, would set him free. Uh, his debt had been paid. But sometimes, if a master was such a good man, and took such good care of his slaves, and, and sometimes family was involved, and this guy provided good housing and good meals and was a kind man, uh, this was the greatest. Uh, re- this was the greatest uh, program back then to have longevity in some kind of a career you know but it's slavery slavery is always wrong it's evil well it's not always evil if you and god made provision if you wanted to voluntarily place yourself into slavery to another person you could do that and what would happen is you would tell your master look i don't want to be set free i want to be your slave for the rest of my life you're a good man you take good care of me and my family and so what would happen then is the uh, the owner would take you, the slave, to the uh, to the front door of his house, and put his uh, ear up against the the door post, and take an awl and drive it through his ear into the door post of the house, symbolically pinning him to that house for the rest of it. He didn't leave him there. He took <laughs> took the awl. But the the symbolism was he has been now pinned to that house for the rest of his life. That in servitude. And they would then take a gold ring and put it in the man's ear. Now, that would be a testimony to everyone who saw you, that you had been a free man, but you served a man that was such an incredible master that you wanted to become a voluntary slave to him for the rest of your life. It was called being a bond slave. And, And that's what Jesus Christ did. He set us free from the slavery that we were into sin and Satan, and we turned right around and said, Lord, we want to become your voluntary slaves the rest of our life. The apostles loved that idea, so they all opened their epistles with, uh, you know, James, a, a bond slave of Christ, Jude, a bond servant of Christ, all the way through because they were picking up on that idea. And so ownership was the first thing a seal represented. Uh, secondly, it spoke of, of security or protection. Remember how that when Jesus was crucified, And his body was placed in the tomb. And the chief priests were worried that one of his disciples were going to come and steal the body and say he had risen from the dead. So they asked Pilate to seal the tomb. And Pilate said, look, you have some guards. You go and seal it. And so they did. And the idea was that they would put something like a rope or a cord across the stone that had been rolled over the mouth of the tomb. And it would be sealed on both sides. You couldn't move the stone unless you broke the seal that that held this cord to either side of the tomb, right? Well, if it was a Roman seal, you didn't dare break that seal because it was placed there under the authority of Caesar. And to break it was under the pain of death. You'd forfeit your life, right? Nobody but Caesar or someone greater than Caesar could break that seal. And so... Paul is picking up on that also and saying, look, God has sealed you in Christ with the Holy Spirit. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, you are absolutely secure. You're secure because to break that seal would take someone greater than God. And since no one is greater than God, not only are you secure, you're eternally secure. Now I know at this point somebody would say, yes, but I can still blow it. I can can still blow it and lose my salvation. Well, again, are you greater than God? If God sealed you, to break that seal where you would lose your salvation, you would have to be greater than God. Romans chapter 8, why don't you turn there. Romans 8 is one of the greatest chapters in all the New Testament to prove the absolute eternal security of the believer in Christ. It starts out with no condemnation. Once we're saved, we have passed from death to life. We shall never come into judgment, right? It starts with no condemnation, salvation, and ends with no separation. In other words, once you're saved, you'll never be separated from God and wind up spending eternity in hell. Right now, Paul ends this incredible chapter with these words, starting with verse 38. He said, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is where? In Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's Paul's way of saying you're saved. When he talks about a person being in Christ, he's referring to a saved person. So the idea here is salvation. And I'm, I'm looking at what he said, and I'm I'm thinking that Paul's trying to, to think of every possible scenario he can think of which where somebody might chime up and say, oh, but what about this? Or what about that? And so Paul runs through this whole litany of things uh, that, you know, he said nothing, nothing would, can ever separate you. Once you're saved, nothing can ever separate you from God who loves you and has sealed you in Christ. Oh, but I can, people say. You know, I, I can still blow it. Are you a created thing? Because if you're a created thing, then not even you can separate yourself from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But you know what? If you're really saved, there's no way you want to be separated, okay? I'm talking hypothetically. If you're really saved, there's no way you want to be outside Christ again because you know in Christ is safety, security, eternal life, like like Noah and his family in the ark, right? Outside of Christ is judgment and death and and so on. Just like outside the ark, if Noah and his family had gotten out of the ark, it would have perished immediately. The ark is a type of Christ. We've talked about that. I don't have time to get into it tonight. But the ark of Noah is a type of Christ. And who sealed Noah and his family in the ark? God did. You read that account? God sealed them in the ark. The question is, could Noah and his family have gotten out if they had wanted to? I don't think so. think they would ever want to? No. You say, well, didn't they feel trapped in there? No. Do you feel trapped in Christ? No, I think that no, and his family felt secure. In the ark, there was safety. There was life. Outside was death. I feel safe in Christ. I don't want to get outside. I don't feel trapped. I mean, I wanted to to be in Christ. I accepted Jesus of my own free will. There's no reason now. I know being in Christ is safety from coming judgment. Being out of Christ means the wrath of God is still abiding on me. And, you know, but um, back to Ephesians for a minute. Verse 1, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 13. Since we're just talking about this, a little detour, which I'm famous for. But again, Ephesians 1, verse 13. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation in whom also having believed, you believed in Jesus, and were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who, listen, is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. You know what the word guarantee is there? It's the Greek word arabon, and it could be translated in one of two ways, Uh, earnest money or engagement ring. It's used in both context okay when you go out looking for a house we'll say and you find one you really love and you what do you do you put a down payment on that house that's called earnest money you're in earnest you're not playing games you got you want that house and the money is there to kind of hold it for you while you go secure a loan to buy it outright take full possession or an engagement ring when a guy really falls for a gal and she loves him and uh, he talks about wanting to marry her. How does she know he's serious? He gives her an engagement ring. It's a down payment, in a sense, to sh- tell her, look, I'm not fooling around. I'm serious about this relationship. I want to go all the way to marriage. I want to marry you. And, and Paul is picking up on this and saying, look, when we gave our heart to Christ, we're not fully redeemed yet. We're still in these bodies of death. We're not in heaven, of course, right? Uh, but God has promised us someday, and we been studying that in John chapter 14 how Jesus made a promise to his guys the night before he went to the cross basically saying well, I'm going away but I'm going to come back someday to get you to bring you to where I am right that we would never be separated again from one another that was a promise when when we got saved God made us that promise that look I'm in earnest about you guys No, I haven't taken you to heaven. The marriage hasn't been consummated, but I want to give you a down payment, an engagement ring. What is that? The Holy Spirit who lives inside of us and is proof that God is serious about what he has bought and paid for, that he is going to take full possession uh, of us someday. That's that's the beauty of this, okay? Um, Let me just say this, since we're talking about this. Are you in Christ this evening? Are you in Christ this evening? If you are, then you are secure there forever. If you're in Christ tonight, God has sealed you in Christ with the Holy Spirit. You are secure eternally. If not, then you're outside the safety and protection of Christ, and the wrath of God is still abiding on you. Judgment is coming. What you need to do to escape the judgment of God, listen, is to accept Jesus' offer of marriage. Because, you know, this is what we're talking about. And we've been talking about this on Sunday morning, so bear with me. There's a difference, and we know this, there's a difference between saying, uh, I love Jesus or I'm in love with Jesus. Uh, There's a difference between going to church maybe all your life and hanging out with Jesus, dating Jesus, quote unquote, but never making a full commitment to marry Jesus. Now, he's proposing marriage to every person on planet Earth. On the cross, he died making it possible for us to be one with him, to have eternal life. Marriage is all about two people becoming one together. That was a microcosm of Christ and his bride. The Bible is very clear about that. But to be saved, it can't just be head knowledge it's you know the head knowledge is important that's where the gospel enters our uh, through our ears and things and we process the truth of the gospel how Jesus God came down, became a man, died for our sins on the cross three days later, rose from the dead. I mean, we have to believe that to get saved, but the devil believes that. every demon in hell believes that they're not saved. why? Because they haven't made a commitment to Christ. They rebelled against the Lord, right? I mean, I went to church all my young life as a Roman Catholic. I got married in the Catholic Church. I had all the head knowledge. As I've said, I believe everything about Jesus. Uh, I believed everything about Jesus. Then I believe now. It wasn't a new revelation of information. So why was I? Am I saved now when I wasn't before? Because now I've made the commitment. That's what saving faith really is. It's not head knowledge. It's just where you bring it into your heart and say, Lord, I don't want to date you. I want to marry you. You've proposed marriage to me, and I want to accept your marriage proposal. How do I do that? By making a commitment to you. We make a commitment to Christ. That's when we go from you know uh, acquaintances of jesus to his bride very important right and that's really what is required i mean and yet it, it's it's simple in the sense that you just say to jesus lord i want you to be my savior i want to uh, enter into this commitment with you and when you meet him, if you meet it with all your heart at that instant you're saved and and jesus places a wedding an engagement ring on you gives you the holy spirit by saying, someday I'm going to come back for you. And we're going to fully consummate the marriage. All right? We're going to make it official. That's the, the thing that happens right after we get raptured. We're taken to heaven, and we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And everything is made official. It's finalized. We are now fully and completely the bride of Christ. Not just engaged, now fully married to our bridegroom. I love the imagery because as Paul is talking about, you know, this seal that was very uh, well known in his day, and how that a person would go to a foreign country, maybe pay for some merchandise, have it shipped back to the port uh, of of his city, and he would go down, and he would uh, the, of course it was sealed, so all the way through the voyage, uh, that cargo, that merchandise belonged to him. It was. Uh, officially his. He had bought and paid for it. And it would, when it would finally come into the port uh, of, of where his city was, he'd go down and he would show the signet ring and he would take possession. You know, when we gave our hearts to Christ, God sealed us with his Holy Spirit. Which means for the rest of our lives, for the rest of our journey in this life, all right, we are his property. Someday, when we die and are taken to heaven, uh, the Lord will meet us there and will claim His property, guaranteeing that once we get to heaven, uh, God will officially claim us as His possess- bought and paid for through the blood of Christ. Just incredible stuff, right? Um, you see the contrast here, though, in, in uh, Revelation seven, how God seals his servants on their forehead with a mark some of some kind, uh, which is in contrast, chapter 13, to how the Antichrist puts a mark on the foreheads of his servants, right? Now you say, is it going to be visible? I don't know. I don't think so. Technology has progressed to the point where uh, they can seal you with something under your skin, uh, a chip of some kind. Of course, God, you know, he does it supernaturally. He can see it. I don't, you know, uh, I don't see anything when I look in the mirror uh, except a lot of ugliness. I don't see a mark there uh, that signifies I belong to him. But in other ways, it does come through, doesn't it? Our life is different. Uh, we have different values now, different goals, uh, different pursuits. We love to come to church. We love to study the Bible. We love to praise His name and share Him with others. These are all you know, the, the the fruit of our relationship with Jesus. But um, in Revelation 7, uh, we see this sealing that shows ownership of these people. They belong to God, and further, that they were sealed for protection. And guys, God has preserved Israel through past judgments uh, that he has brought upon nations that they were living in at that time, where he's judged those nations and yet spared his people Israel. You say, what do you mean? Well, the major one that comes to mind is when they were living in Egypt, right? When Israel was living in Egypt, and God began to judge the Egyptians with the ten plagues, right? He protected his people. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, uh, it doesn't say after every single thing he protected them, but we get the idea that he was protecting them. Remember, uh, the, one of the plagues where God brought darkness upon the land of Israel, uh, the land of Egypt, right? And all these judgments were against one of their gods. They worshiped Ra, the sun god, so God put out the lights. But it says in Goshen, where the children of Israel lived, there was sunshine. So God has spared his people. You wonder how much has God spared us from without us re- even realizing it? Um, you know, what would the devil have done to us if God wasn't protecting us, right? I'm convinced he'd kill us in a heartbeat. We don't even realize what God is protected. You, you, you misplace your keys, right? You're upset. You're saying some stuff we're not going to repeat. Hopefully not, but you, you know. And it, it delays you five minutes or so. You finally find the keys. You're upset, furious. You don't know if God didn't cause you to lose five minutes to keep you from the accident that might have taken your life. We don't know. We get to heaven. I I guess he'll make it all known to us. But we belong to him, and he is protecting us in this fallen world all around us. Um, But listen, the sealing of God's servants in Revelation 7, verses 2 and 3, reminds us of what God said to the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 9 of his book. Why don't you turn there, Ezekiel 9, I think in many ways, Ezekiel 9 is really a foreshadowing of Revelation chapter 7 and God sealing his 144,000 servants in the Great Tribulation. Um, This was a a time of judgment. God was bringing on um, the nation, but protecting his true believers. A lot of apostasy in Israel at this time. A lot of uh, sin idolatry, and so on. But there, were, there was a faithful remnant, as there always is. Uh, whenever God judges a nation, there are always those who, who love him. And so here we see him protecting them. Ezekiel 9, starting with verse 3. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub, the angel, where it had been, to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen, who had the writers inkhorn corn at his side. This would be an angel. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. This is just a way of saying, mark the foreheads of those who truly love me, who are not taking part in all this wickedness. They're, they're weeping. They're sighing. They're devastated with what's going on. These are the hearts of my true servants. Mark them. Mark their foreheads. Verse 5, to the others, he said in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women. Uh, But do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. Interesting. Where does judgment begin? At the house of God. Why? Because we know better. Before God judges the culture, He judges His church. And when I say He judges His church, I'm talking about how that the church has become infested with terrors, infested with false prophets and teachers and false doctrine, Uh, Jesus and the other apostles told us this would happen and would increase the closer we got to his return, right? And I think even now God is judging his church. Uh, You see so many celebrity pastors, quote unquote, who are falling, who are being exposed for who they are, who are being taken out of ministry. I think in some ways God is purifying his church, maybe for what's coming, that we might be used as a a more purified church and being used by God to touch people before the rapture, then of course, as we're going to talk about tonight, others will take over. But God is saying to, and I, I think this is a foreshadowing of the day in which we're living. How that God said, look, there's a lot of wickedness in this city, Jerusalem. And I have to judge it. I'm sure God gave them ample time to repent. In fact, you know, we read about how God said, look, I sent you prophet after prophet, having them get up early and go and weep and cry out to you to, to repent, but you wouldn't listen. So after many, many years of them not listening to what God was pleading with them to do, which was to repent, now his judgment's going to fall. But even now he says to the angel, mark every person in this city who lo- knows me and loves me, who weeps over the abominations going on around them, and then kill everybody else. Wow. We talked about Noah. I was going to save that for now, but we already talked about Noah, how God sealed Noah and his family in the ark to protect them from the first worldwide judgment, which was Noah's flood. Uh, There's another worldwide judgment coming. We're studying it right now, the uh, tribulation period. But uh, when God sealed Noah and his family in the ark, they became a type of the 144,000, he seals from judgment during the tribulation period. Now the question is, who are these 144,000? Well, many different groups have claimed to be the 144,000. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, in the beginning, claimed that they were the 144,000, and the idea was they were when they first started out, they preached that uh, God had revealed to them that they were the 144,000 and when their group reached that magic number, boom, they'd be taken to heaven and that they would live with God forever in heaven. Well, what happened was the group kept growing. And once it grew past 144,000, they had to get a new revelation. Oh, God just spoke to us again. Only the first 144,000 actually live in heaven. But everybody else that gets comes into our group after that is going to live on the earth in a paradise condition. So that's the new revelation they got uh, after they exceeded that number. Uh, I don't know if you realize this, but historical Mormonism uh, claimed that, that they were the 144,000. Ellen G. White in the Seventh-day Adventists claimed to be the 144,000. Uh, Garner Ted Armstrong and his Worldwide Church of God claim, or had claimed, I don't know if they've changed this, but claimed at one point to be the 144,000. Most biblical scholars, most Bible scholars, either regard the 144,000 as the church or as or as converted Jews who get saved during the tribulation period, a group we would call the tribulation saints. Okay. It's not a small issue. It's not a small issue. If these 144,000 are symbol- symbolic of the church, it means the church is definitely going into the great tribulation. And that's a theological problem for us who are pre trip right? Uh, so it's important that we understand who these people are. And of course, those that believe the church goes into the great tribulation also believe that God's going to seal th- uh, those Christians because, you know, as we have studied, uh, he won't he won't punish the righteous with the wicked. Um, you know, we as members of Jesus Christ Church have not been appointed to wrath. And so they have a way of saying, look, the church is going into the tribulation, but we're going to be sealed. We're not going to suffer like unbelievers around us are suffering judgment because we're, we're saved, okay? Um, before I tell you who I think they are, let me just say this to you. God couldn't have made it any clearer, Okay? So why is there so much confusion as to who these one hundred forty-four thousand are? You want to know why? Because man brings his preconceived or his um, uh, his uh, theological agenda or beliefs, his baggage into the Bible instead of letting the Bible dictate what he or she should believe. The reason that so many in the church hold to the to the belief that these one hundred forty-four thousand represent the church is because. Uh, mainline denominations for years, centuries uh, have been typically classically post-trip. They believe that the rapture will happen at the end of the tribulation period. So they got to find scriptures that put the church in the tribulation period. But again, I really don't understand the confusion. I think the Holy Spirit makes it crystal clear who these people are. Read verse 4. John said, and I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000, listen, of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. You know, it's amazing how when people take something clear and they muddy the waters with it and it becomes uh, a controversial issue. You know what that means? It's a controversy usually that means I don't want to accept the plain simple teaching because I don't agree with that my theology is different so I've got to make it say something else and so it's not really controversial it's just that it doesn't line up with their theology or their doctrine whatever they're holding to and therefore they've got to try to squeeze the Bible into their doctrines again I don't see what is so hard I mean, God said very clearly, "Seal one hundred forty-four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel." So they said, "Well, yeah, yeah, yeah," but you got to understand something. Uh, it's, it's spiritual Israel. It's it's not really Israel. God didn't really mean that. It's spiritual Israel. The church is spiritual Israel. But I think it's pretty obvious. These, this one hundred group of one hundred forty-four thousand are Jewish believers. Who, will, who are marked and sealed by God as his servants, his evangelists during the tribulation. Uh, to further clarify, okay, for all those who still might have some doubts as to the identity of the 144,000, the Holy Spirit goes on in tedious detail to list them. The first time I read this as a, as a new Christian, I'm like, Lord, why? Did you put it like this? It sounds so childish to say it like this. Let me read it to you, okay? In case you were still wrestling with who these folks are, I think the Spirit goes on in great tedious detail to list them, right? Verse 5 Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, twelve thousand were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, twelve thousand were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, twelve thousand were sealed. Of the tribe, you getting bored? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, right? It's like, honestly, Lord. Of the tribe of Simeon, twelve thousand were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, twelve thousand were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, twelve thousand were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, twelve thousand were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Why did God, the Holy Spirit, go through this tedious kind of a, where he just lists these tribes this way? He didn't just say, oh yeah, uh, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes were, were sealed. No, he lists each tribe. Makes it a point to say 12,000 from this tribe, from that tribe, and so on, right? He did that because he, he was trying to keep people from spiritualizing or turning this into some kind of an allegory. It's amazing to me, no matter how hard the Holy Spirit tries to make something clear, man can always mess it up. Some people will always, no matter how clear the Holy Spirit makes it, you got some group that goes, but that's really not what God meant. We're the 144,000. But see, as I read this, 144,000 are Jews, not Jehovah's Witnesses, not Mormons, not Worldwide Church of God people, or any other group or cult. Why is it that so many groups make themselves the 144,000 or try to spiritualize the text so as to write Israel completely out of the picture? It's a good question. And the answer to that question is something called replacement theology. Replacement theology. Replacement theology teaches that the church has replaced Israel because the Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And, of course, this means that all of God's promises were for, uh, to Israel were forfeited and have now passed to the church. And Israel is not completely out of the picture they teach. God is done with Israel, and the church has completely replaced Israel in the plan of God for the world. This, again, is known as replacement theology. It also goes by the labels Reconstructionism and Kingdom Now. The idea is that, this idea, I should say, is by no means new. By no means new. I think one pastor gives a good overview of church history to help us understand some important points. I'll just read it to you. I think it's important that you uh, just hear this and have a working knowledge of what we're talking about, okay? Uh, This pastor said, and I quote, following Constantine's conversion, Constantine was a Roman emperor who uh, supposedly had a conversion experience and became a Christian. I personally don't think he was saved, uh, but but he thought he was, and a lot of folks think Constantine really became a Christian. So following Constantine's conversion in 8312, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. At this point, Christian teachers, thinkers, and theologians said, "Uh uh-oh, we've been teaching the kingdoms of this world are going to fall, but now we've got a Christian in power in the person of Constantine. Up until this point, all the church leaders, teachers, they all taught that the kingdoms of this world were all corrupt because they were all ruled by man who was a fallen, corrupt creature. So they always taught that the kingdoms of this world were corrupt that God was going to judge them and so on, but now Constantine, the Roman emperor, is a Christian. Uh Uh-oh, we can't really say that the Roman Empire is corrupt and that its leader is corrupt. That's not going to sit well. So Origen, who was a heavyweight early church father, Bible teacher, uh, Origen, uh, Bible teacher and philosopher of, of that day, said, and I'm quoting him, I think we've been... Uh, I'm paraphrasing. I think we've been reading the scriptures wrong. All the promises given to Israel are simply allegories and illustrations. The author says, as a result of adopting this view, this belief, he said, all the promises given to Israel, excuse me, as a result of power and potency, the effectiveness and impact of the church decreased steadily. Origen, the author says, left the scene and was followed by Augustine, who was such a gifted proponent of the case for allegorizing the uh, the Old Testament scriptures that even in some of today's King James Bibles, uh, there are sections. Now, if you've got a Bible with little headings uh, before every section, those are called pericopes, okay, pericopes. Not every Bible has them. I personally like them when they're in there, but there's you know they, they give little uh, little statements that you know uh, talk about that section coming up right. Augustine was so so powerful a teacher and and promoted the allegorization of Old Testament scriptures so much that that a lot of people bought into it. You got to remember Calvin, one of the fathers of the Reformation was super into Augustine and quoted him profusely in his institutes, Calvin's institutes. Calvin, of course, was one of the reformers, the fathers of the Reformation, and so he was very well respected. And so, you know, consequently, you have then the Geneva Bible, which came out uh, from the Reformation. It's kind of the official version of the Bible. and And, and in these translations of the Bible that were heavily influenced by this kind of thinking, this this allegory, right, where the church now has replaced Israel. Uh, It's interesting that when you read some of these Bibles, uh, you come across a a pericope, okay, a little heading that says, uh, blessings upon the church. Now, it really was blessings upon Israel, but they they replaced Israel the church for israel so that little section said when it's talking about blessings blessings upon the church then when you read a little farther and the heading is you know it was supposed to be curses upon israel for disobedience it says curses upon israel (laughs) i mean that's really it's not it's not honest okay it's not honest Now, Augustine was eventually followed by Martin Luther, the author says. And Luther, although a giant of the faith, was terribly wrong on one issue. He hated the Jews. He hated the Jews. Uh, He just held to the idea that they they crucified the Lord. They murdered our Lord, and he hated them. The author says that's why many Protestant churches, mostly Lutheran churches, supported Hitler well into his regime. Because they were a state church. The Lutheran church was a state church of Germany. Paid uh, Pastors were paid out of the coffers of the state. That's never a good arrangement, by the way. Whenever the church marries the world, the church always suffers. Not the world, the church always suffers, right? Um, but many Protestant pastors supported Hitler well into his regime because of this thinking. The author concludes, God is not through with the Jews, you know Anyone who thinks that God is done with the Jews needs to read Romans 11. Because in that chapter, God said very clearly, Paul, speaking from the Holy Spirit, said very clearly that God is not finished with the Jews. He's still got plans for them. The author concludes, because the promises he made to them were unconditional, they cannot be forfeited. 144,000 Jewish believers will be sealed by God as his servants, his evangelists, during the tribulation period. Now, folks, I have often believed that these 144,000 Jewish evangelists are going to be on par with Paul the Apostle. I just feel that way, that these God's going to unleash 144,000 Paul the Apostles uh, onto the world scene, and their ministry is going to be so powerful that millions and I really believe hundreds of millions are going to get saved during their ministry and God is doing that because you know he's giving everybody on planet earth one last time to repent okay and and giving them the greatest evangelist probably the world has ever seen so that the message is very clear it's anointed and so on As we said, to further clarify, for all those who still might have some doubts as to the identity of the 144,000, who they are, again, the Holy Spirit goes to goes on in great tedious detail in verses 5 through 8 to list them. Again, 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from this tribe. Notice uh, that Jews from all 12 tribes are sealed. This idea of the 10 lost tribes is... A myth okay it's a myth where does that come from maybe you've heard that that there, there there's there's the 10 lost tribes of Israel well they're not lost God knows where they are but this comes from how when Solomon gave the kingdom over to his son Rehoboam Rehoboam wasn't that sharp he wasn't that wise. young guy cocky and um, Solomon's older advisors came to uh, to Rehoboam and said look your dad heavily taxed the people to build all of his projects and things. You know what? If you give the people some tax relief, they'll follow you all their life. If you don't, they're going to rebel. He said, well, hang on. Let me go and talk to some more people. So he went and talked to his buddies, young guys, right? <laughs> all coconut heads, all of them. So the young guy said, no, 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 no. <laughs> These old guys, what do they know, Right. Uh, you got to show these people who's boss. You tell them you think my dead was rough on you. If you don't fall in line, I'm going to be way worse than him. So the people rebelled to your tents of Israel. And so that's when the kingdom bifurcated. It broke into two parts, Judah and Benjamin to the south, called, uh, called um, Judah. And then to the north were the ten tribes called Israel. When Assyria came back in 722 B.C. and conquered the northern kingdom, the Syrians had a way of doing things where they took all the people, most all the people, they left a few handicapped and elderly in the land, but they took all the people basically and sprinkled them throughout the Assyrian Empire. That way there'd be no chance of revolt or rebellion because, you know, You were out of your culture. You couldn't speak the language. You were just trying to survive. You didn't have any time to organize a rebellion, right? And that's how they did it. It was pretty effective. Cruel, but very effective. So that's where the idea of the 10 lost tribes comes from, all right? The problem with that is when Babylon conquered the Assyrian Empire 115 years later, everything that Assyria had conquered fell under Babylonian control, and the, and the king, uh, the Osiris later, who was the king of Persia, um, let all the people go. Now, they knew who they were. They knew what tribe they were from. And anyone who wanted to go back to Israel to repatriate the land could go. And so a whole bunch came back, okay? So this idea of the ten lost tribes is ridiculous. James even writes his epistle to the twelve tribes. They were never lost, Okay. Now, let me just say this, and we'll have to close. There are 29 lists in the Bible of the 12 tribes of Israel. 29 lists. And they're not always in chronological order, from Reuben to Benjamin, okay? From the firstborn to the lastborn. Often they're mixed up. Sometimes there's a spiritual reason, and if you take the names of each of these, 12 tribes you know their their name it actually forms sometimes sentences like a little mystical or hidden message Uh, but sometimes it's just that's just the way the 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 order falls okay but there are out of the 29 lists in the bible of the 12 tribes and the original list appears in genesis uh, 35 verses 22 to 26 and the last list chronologically appears in ezekiel uh, chapter forty-eight, verses thirty to thirty-four, and I say chronological, not because uh, this is what um, uh, it's it because uh, from the first list in Genesis of the twelve tribes, the last listing we have is of chronologically is in uh, is in Ezekiel, which talks about the uh, millennial kingdom, and we're not even there yet. Okay, so it looks forward to the millennial kingdom. All right. But of all these lists, 29 lists of the 12 tribes, something is wrong with the list of the 12 tribes as they appear in Revelation 7. Of all these lists, there's a problem with the list of the 12 tribes in the book of Revelation chapter 7. We don't have time to get into what it is. You'll have to come back like little hooks to drag you back here. When I go to church tonight, but I gotta find out what's wrong with that list. So I say you gotta come back, uh, and uh, and uh, we'll we'll look at it, and then we'll move on. But uh, very important that you know, and God never does things by accident. Oh, maybe God just forgot. Oh, come on, who? who? I I hope no evangelical would actually think that, you know. And I was talking to somebody before service that uh, some of his very good friends from Bible college, three of them, have gone off and started a cult. And uh, it's amazing. We're, we're in the last days. You know, these were Calvary, Chapel, Bible college students. One of them uh, bunked with my son-in-law. He knows all three of these guys very well. And um, make a long story short, one of the key doctrines that this group has, has formed itself around is that God changes his mind. So you might be chosen today and are a Christian, but maybe God's going to change his mind about you, and you won't go to heaven. Now try to live with that theology. How do you even sleep at night? You know, I'm saved today, but what if God changes his mind? How horrible. That's a devil, right? Perfect love does what? Cast out fear. We just said, if I'm in Christ, I'm in Christ forever. I really believe the Bible teaches that. Now, does that mean I want to go out and sin more? No, because I know I'm secure. I can't lose. I can't blow it. No, you got the Holy Spirit inside of you. You don't want to go out and sin more. You want to go out and sin less because of all that God's done for you, right? But um, we're just living in the last days, and um, God changes His mind. I seem to remember in the Word, God says, "I am the Lord God. I change not." I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our God is not a vacillating God. He is not a God that is, you know, today He's loves me and tomorrow he hates me. Our God is not like that. So we will come on back next week and we will see what is wrong with this list of the tribes in Revelation 7 and what it means. What does God communicating to us so come on back father we thank you for your word your word is truth Lord and we thank you that uh, as we have been working through it Lord one thing that comes through loud and clear you're a God who loves us as your as, as, as your people you love your church your people you have sealed us with your Holy Spirit you are in earnest that about us that you're coming back to take full possession of what you have bought and paid for on calvary's cross and we need never worry that you know you're going to change your mind and say i don't want him or her no lord thank you that our salvation is uh, sure and we just thank you and ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word we ask all this in jesus name amen